will be in Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5. Finishing up our series that we've been looking at all this month uh, on the thought uh, of from creation to Calvary. As you're turning to your place there, I, we've got several visitors with us this morning. I do want to encourage you, if you got a bulletin when you came in, inside that bulletin on the flyleaf is a visitor's card. If you would fill that out, I would love to send you a thank you uh, and a gift card for an ice cream and let you know that we appreciate you being in our services this morning. So if you're visiting with us, take a moment, fill that out, and let us send you a thank you card and let you know we appreciate you being here this morning. Morning. Romans uh, chapter number 5. Every Sunday this month, we have been looking at the series from creation to Calvary. Uh, we started off uh, with the first message looking at man's problem. Uh, man was created perfect. Man was placed into a perfect garden. Uh, but man wasn't there very long until man disobeyed the law of God and man found that he had a problem. And from that day on, condemnation came upon all of mankind, both because of the sin of our father Adam and because of our own choices uh, to disobey the law of God. So we started off looking at the problem uh, of sin that each and every man has. We then uh, went on the next week and looked at God's plan because uh, man had sinned. The relationship between God and man had been broken. Now in order for man to have a relationship with God, a payment must be made. And so we looked at how God put together a plan of redemption, a way that he would pay for the sin of mankind. We then saw this past week the person of Jesus Christ in order for the plan of redemption to work. There had to be a sinless, spotless sacrifice. All through the Old Testament we were given the Levitical law and the law of the sacrifice and over and over and over and over we were taught that in order for blood to be able to cover sin. It had to be spotless. If it came from a spotted lamb, then it was defiled and was not able to cover the blemish of someone else. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews, oh, that the blood of bulls and goats could only temporarily cover our sin. And then one day, the Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman and came and He came here and He lived a sinless, spotless life. And the reason that He did it was so that He could die as a perfect sacrifice. He did it so that he could shed his spotless blood. He did it so that he could make an eternal payment that would wipe away the condemnation that had been passed upon all mankind. He came, the Bible says, to take away the sin of the world. The only thing left remaining is that man will accept the payment that he made. This morning, Lord, being our helper, I want to take a few minutes and look at this thought, the provision of Calvary. The provision of Calvary. In Romans chapter number 5, we're going to read verse number 1, and then we'll drop down and read verse 6 down through verse number 9. The Bible says in Romans 5 and in verse number 1, Therefore, 
being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Drop with me to verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, Lord, it's been good to be in your house. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed. My heart is full. I'm overwhelmed, Lord, with your presence. And Father, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the ability to come to your house. I thank you, Lord, for each person that has taken the time to come and be a part of the service this morning. And Lord, as we've worshipped you in song and in scripture reading, Father, I pray that already before we dive into your word that you have ministered to the hearts of your people, Father, I pray. Lord, as we begin to look at this provision that you made on Calvary. Father, I pray if there be any here this morning, uh, Lord, that has never accepted you as Lord and Savior. Father, uh, they've been living their own life. Uh, they've been living their own way. Uh, and Father, there's never been a time uh, when they said, I want to live for Jesus. Uh, there's never been a time, Lord, uh, when they turned from themselves uh, and turned to you. Father, as we look uh, at what you did for us on Calvary, Father, I pray that you will speak to their heart uh, I pray, dear Lord, that you will convict them of their need for a Savior. And Lord, that they will accept you this morning. And Lord, that they will allow you to make a change in them that they never imagined possible. Thank you, dear Lord, for this privilege and opportunity to be in your house. Bless now as we look at your word. And Father, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As I said, every Sunday this month, we've been looking at this series from creation to Calvary. Every Sunday, we have been looking at different aspects of God's provision from here in Romans chapter number 5. Uh, Romans chapter number 5 speaks clearly uh, of man's need for salvation. Uh, and it also speaks clearly of God's uh, ability to provide that salvation. Uh, this morning, uh, I want to look at what I call the climax of... Uh, of this series, the climax of God's plan, and that is the provision that he made for you and I at Calvary. As we look into this passage, the first thing we see concerning Calvary is found in verse number 1, where we see the purpose of Calvary. You see that in, in here in chapter 5 and verse number 1, Paul is reflecting on the benefit that he received as a believer in putting his trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reflecting on what he has gained and in doing so, in doing in reflecting on it, in thinking back on it, he reveals to you and I what the purpose of the crucifixion was, what it was that God was intending to accomplish when he went to Calvary. And so we see here in verse number 1 uh, two things that I believe we see concerning the purpose of the crucifixion. We see first of all the purpose of the crucifixion was justification. The purpose of the cross was justification. You say, what does that big word mean? What does it mean to be justified? The word justified means to be made righteous. Righteous. 
It means that to take something that is unclean, to take something that is defiled, to take something that is unworthy, and to make it clean, to make it holy, to make it righteous, to make it presentable to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what it means to be justified. And the first purpose of the cross that we see in verse number 1 was to be justified. Paul reflecting back on the benefit he received from accepting Christ. He said in verse number 1, Therefore, being justified by faith. We see the first thing that was accomplished or that was intended to be accomplished at the cross was the justification of mankind. We see that you and I as human beings, we are not righteous. When we come into this world, we are condemned. And as we go through our life and we begin to make selfish choices, we only further secure our condemnation. We are not righteous. But in order for God to have a relationship with man, which is why he created us, man must be righteous. God cannot fellowship with unrighteousness. God cannot fellowship with uncleanness. God will have no part with unholiness. And whenever he looks at condemned man who he created for the purpose of having a relationship with him, he is unable to have that relationship. Why is he unable to have that relationship? Because we are unrighteous. So the first purpose of Calvary was to provide a way that we could be righteous. To provide a way that we could be clean so that we could have a relationship with Christ. At Calvary, the sinless blood of Christ would be shed and it would be applied to the account of sinful man and man would be able to be declared righteous before God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 11, Paul is speaking to some Christians here who have put their trust in Christ. And Paul is talking in chapter number 6 of 1 Corinthians about several things, that lifestyles they used to live. And he says in verse number 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The purpose of Calvary was to provide justification. There is no way that me in my own strength or you in your own ability can ever stand in the presence of God. But through the sinless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am now qualified to enter into the throne room of God. I have been justified. Titus 3.7 says that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In addition to justification, the second purpose of Calvary that I see in verse number one, first purpose was that we be justified. The second purpose is peace with God. He said there in verse number one, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know, if I understand my position, 
without Christ. If I understand who I am without salvation... I am unclean, I am unrighteous, I am ungodly, I am unholy. And whenever I consider that this is who I am without God, and then I begin to think about who God is, and that He is the Creator, that He is the controller of all things, that He is all-powerful, that He holds my breath in His hand, that He is the one that controls every aspect of everything that goes on in life, and I begin to recognize who he is in relation to who I am as unclean and unholy and unrighteous. If I get those two things in perspective the way that they ought to be, I will begin to fear and tremble at the thought of entering into the presence of God. Because he has no use for the lifestyle of the ungodly. So I begin to be concerned about entering into his presence. If I truly understand who he is, I'm concerned about entering into the presence of a holy God. But the purpose of Calvary was to give me peace with God. The purpose of Calvary was to take an undone, unworthy, unholy person and to wash him with the blood of Christ and to cleanse him and to make him whole and to cover him so that although I am still unworthy and I'm still not everything I ought to be, I can enter into the throne room of God and I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be concerned. I don't have to be afraid for my life because I've been covered by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been made holy. I have been made clean. I have peace with God. What is the purpose of Calvary? Why did Calvary have to happen? It had to happen for two reasons. One, so that man could be justified and two, so that man could have peace with God. In addition to the purpose of Calvary, if we drop down to verse number 6, I see the strength of Calvary. The strength of Calvary. We understand the reason that Calvary needed to happen was that I might be justified and that I might have peace with God. But I want to look this morning in verse number 6 at the strength of Calvary. For when we were yet without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Has there ever been a time when you were unable to do something? You didn't have the physical strength to do what needed to be done. You, you wanted to do it. It needed to be done. It needed to be accomplished. But you in and of yourself, by yourself, did not have the strength to get it done. Many of us may have experienced this as children. There was something that needed done, but we did not have the ability, we didn't have the physical strength to get it done. Then along would come an older teen or maybe an adult, maybe our dad, and we would say, I need this done. And they have the strength to accomplish what we could not accomplish. Ladies, how many of you 
come into the living room to find your husband there in his recliner, reading the newspaper, drinking his coffee or his tea, and you say, can you open this jar of pickles? <laughs> Fellas, we fold that newspaper up and lay it down. We flex our muscles. We set the recliner down. We're, I mean, you would think this is the biggest tax that has ever taken place, and we set up and we grab a hold of that jar, and I'm telling you what, we're going to crush that jar in our hands before we don't open the jar. <laughs> the wife says, I don't have the strength to open this jar. Sometimes I think they just like watching us flex our muscles and set up in the chair. They really could open the jar. But they're like, I can't open this jar. I don't have the strength to accomplish this by myself. And the husband says, I've got the strength. Let me open the jar. We look here in verse number 6, and it says, For when we were yet without strength, we did not have what it took to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. I want to show you two things about the strength of Calvary. First, I see what we've already talked about just a moment. I see our inability. Our inability. The phrase used here without strength is often applied to those who are physically unable, perhaps to those who are sick or feeble, or maybe those who have lost strength due to disease or sickness, which definitely can be applied to our sin condition. But this phrase is also used to indicate our inability or our feebleness in regard to any type of moral undertaking or duty. We do not have the strength. We have been weakened because of sin. The disease of sin has weakened us and made us incapable of accomplishing anything of any moral value. We are without strength. Here in this passage, it means that we have no power in and of ourselves to provide our own justification. We have no strength in ourselves to provide peace with God. We have no power within ourselves to even devise a scheme that would satisfy God. We are weak in regards to our moral state. But although I see our inability in this verse, I also see His capability. Christ was able to do what we could not do. Where we were weak, He was strong. Where we were incapable, He was more than capable. While there was no hope of salvation by any plan of man's own doing, God was able to provide a salvation that exceeded all of our expectations. God in His mercy provided His Son who through the crucifixion was able to overcome the weakness of man. He was able to overcome the curse of sin. He was able to pay the debt. And He was able to deliver mankind from the penalty of eternal judgment. The Bible says in Romans 8 verse 3 and 4, For what the law could not do, why could the law not do it? In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I see the strength of Calvary. We are incapable of having a relationship with God in and of ourselves. But the crucifixion was able to more than supply our need. We see the purpose of Calvary. We see the strength of Calvary. But in verse number 7, I want you to look at the rarity of Calvary. The rarity of Calvary. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. What took place on Calvary's hill some 2,000 years ago was unusual and uncommon. Now the fact that someone was crucified was not uncommon. Wicked men and, and wrongdoers were crucified regularly by the Romans. But for an innocent man to be crucified for the sins of someone else was very uncommon. This was not an usual occurrence. I want to point out two things about the rarity of Calvary. First, I see an unlikely redemption. An unlikely redemption. I want you to notice the words in, in that verse there, scarcely and dare. Scarcely and dare. For one to give his life for another is uncommon. The Bible says for scarcely would someone do this. Some would even dare to do this. This is uncommon that someone would give his life for someone else. But however, you and I know that sometimes it does happen. We have heard stories of heroes who have given their life for someone else. When Brother Tim Thompson was here, he was telling me about a story that he was sharing with his boys about a soldier who had dove onto a grenade to protect his comrades. And of course he gave his life for the life of his comrade. And there is occasion that we will hear a story where someone has given their life for someone else. And we recognize those people as heroes because of the sacrifice that they made. But it is not often that someone dies for someone else. But in addition to it being unlikely, I want you to notice there the unworthy recipients. In addition to being in need of something uncommon, there was something we needed that was uncommon. We needed someone to die in our place. This is what we needed. We needed something that was rare, something that was uncommon, but in addition to needing something uncommon, we were unqualified to receive it. In verse number 7, the Bible tells us that when someone does give their life for, the, for another, the character of the beneficiary comes into play. The Bible says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. The, the principle here is uh, that it doesn't happen often, uh, but when it does happen, uh, the, the character uh, of the beneficiary uh, is uh, an important factor. Uh, if you give your life, uh, you have given your life for someone you feel uh, is worthy to continue living. You give your life for someone uh, who is uh, comfortable 
accomplishing a goal or has a cause or there is something about their life that makes you feel that their life is more valuable than your own. Anytime this happens, the character of the beneficiary comes into play. To die in the place of a charitable, kind, and loving individual be difficult to give your life for that person, but it's possible. But to die for the scum of the earth, to go to death row and find a murderer or a rapist or a child molester and say, I will take their place. I will die that they might live. I will die so that they can go on. I will take their place. I will be the one who is executed that they might have life. This is completely different. You see, what man needed was an unlikely redemption. But not only did he need an unlikely redemption, man was an unworthy recipient. Whenever we look at who was being sacrificed, the sinless spotless Lamb of God and we compare it to who he is dying for, a sinful, condemned mankind. It was unworthy recipients that we see here. Calvary was a rarity. Why would someone give their life to extend the life of someone unworthy? Yet the Bible answers that question in verse number 8. But God. Well, I'm telling you what, anytime you see that phrase, it's about time to get excited. But God. Man is in a bad place. Man deserves to die. The only thing that can save man from the position he has found himself is something that is not available. Man is condemned. This is over for man. And then you come to verse number 8 and the Bible says, But God, when God intervened, things begin to happen. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here in this verse we see the love of Calvary. The love of Calvary. I see two things in verse number 8 concerning the love of Calvary. First, I see undeserved favor. We didn't deserve His love, yet He gave it. For centuries... Mankind has spurned the love of God. For centuries, mankind has disobeyed the commandments of God. For centuries, mankind has violated the law of God. Man has corrupted the nature of God. They have corrupted the order and design that God put in place, and yet God still extends His love to sinful mankind. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, I want to say it is an undeserved favor. If you think for a minute that there is anything within yourself that is worthy of the love of an almighty God, you misunderstand who He is. You misunderstand His righteousness. You misunderstand His holiness. We are His creation. We are in no way equal to Him. He is far superior. Our thoughts are not His thoughts. Our, our way is not His way. He is superior above us. He is exalted. He is in control. He is the ruler of everything. He is not, uh, is not required to love us and there is nothing in us that merits His love. Yet the Bible says He commended His love toward us. 
Undeserved favor. Man rejects God, denies God, and yet God extends his love to mankind. Man doesn't deserve the love of God, yet God extends his love. How, how does he bestow that love? The last four words of verse number 8 tell us of his unconditional sacrifice. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unconditional sacrifice. He could have said, okay, there's, there's a few people here that's not as bad as everyone else and so I'm going to get those people and I'm just going to go over here and start over with them. No, it was an unconditional sacrifice. He said, I am going to die that mankind might have a way of salvation. Isaiah 53 verse 5 and 6 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. When I look at the love of Calvary, I see undeserved favor, but I see an unconditional sacrifice. The last thing I want to point out to you this morning about the provision of Calvary is found in verse number 9 where we see the result of Calvary. In verse number 1, we saw the purpose of Calvary. What it was that God wanted to accomplish. He wanted to provide justification. He wanted to make a way that man could have peace with God. This was the purpose. Now we ask the question, was it successful? There's been times that I've set out to do things and my plan didn't work. Things I wanted to accomplish, but whenever I tried to accomplish it, whatever it was that I had laid out, the scheme that I had, the way that I had planned for it to happen, didn't work. God put together a plan. He said, here's what I want to accomplish. The question is, did it work? In verse number 9, we see the result of Calvary. Much more than. You know what I believe that means? Not only did it work, it worked really, really well. Not only was it successful, but it was exceedingly successful. Not only did it accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish, but it went over and above anything we could ever expect or dream of. Much, much more. It says much, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through 
him. Was it successful? Yes, it was successful. I see two reasons. There's the Calvary was successful. First of all, I see in verse number nine, immediate justification. You know what? There are many people who will try to teach you that you've got to do your best. You've got to live your best. You've got to do as many good deeds as you can. And I agree that we ought to try our best to live a good life. But they insinuate that we've got to do our best and live our best and do good deeds because someday we're going to get to heaven and God is going to take our good deeds over here and our bad deeds over here and in essence he's going to put them on a scale and whichever one tips the scale will determine whether or not we go to heaven or hell. Let me tell you, I praise the good Lord that my salvation is not dependent on my good deeds. My salvation is not dependent on anything I have done. My salvation is dependent upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see here that this Calvary was successful in that it provided immediate justification. It says in verse number 9, being now justified by His blood through the blood of Christ, those who accept Him are immediately justified. You might be here this morning. You might be listening online. You might be ungodly. You might have lived wickedly this past weekend. You might have a list of sins on your tally that you hope nobody finds out about. And you are saying, "I am. there is no way that I will ever, ever go to heaven. Well, let me tell you, as long as you keep depending on yourself, you're exactly right. There is no way that you will ever enter the gates of heaven. But if you were to come this morning and you were to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, and to enter into your heart and make you whole and clean. I want to say at that moment, as soon as you pray, when you stand up from that altar, you are just as saved as anyone else is. You are guaranteed heaven just as much as anyone else is because you are immediately justified when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. His blood covers all of your sin. It is not through my good deeds that I get into heaven, but it is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Calvary successful? Oh my, it was successful because it can take the dirtiest, rottenest, low-down sinner and turn it into a child of God instantaneously. Was Calvary successful? Oh my, Calvary was successful in that it provided immediate justification. But in addition to immediate justification, I see that Calvary was successful and that it provided eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. Much more than. Being now justified by His blood. Catch this last phrase. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. What is the word... What is the word wrath talking about? It's talking about eternal damnation in a lake of fire. Therefore, because of Calvary, because of His shed blood, because of the price that He paid, because of the way that He made available, we shall be saved from wrath. If you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, never again do you have to worry or never again do you have to wonder if you'll spend eternity in hell. Never again do you have to wonder what's going to happen when your life ends. No, you will be saved from wrath through Him. He has promised 
to eternal salvation. Judgment day is coming. There will be a day of reckoning. And those who have persisted in their rejection, those who have persisted in their denial of God, those who have persisted in their rebellion, when judgment day comes, they will have to pay for their rejection and their rebellion and their denial. But if you would just turn loose of that rejection, if you would turn loose of that rebellion, if you would accept what Jesus Christ has done for you, never again will you have to worry about judgment day. You will be saved from wrath because of what he did on Calvary. The psalmist David put it so well in Psalm 23 and verse number 6. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I believe that's talking about that justification. And then we get to that eternal salvation. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This morning, as we conclude our series from creation to Calvary, I want to remind you that mankind has a sin problem. But God has a plan of redemption. And it was accomplished through the sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary. This morning, my question to you is have you put your trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask Miss Debbie to make her way to the piano. As she makes her way to the piano, I want to ask you, have you benefited from the strength of Calvary? Calvary can do what you cannot do. You can keep trying your whole life long. Have you benefited from the strength of Calvary and let God take care of what you couldn't do? Do you understand the love that was shown for you on Calvary? Do you understand the love that God exhibited towards you when he hung there on the cross and blood ran down and he shed his blood and gave his life for you? Do you understand the extent of love that he gave to you? Each year we celebrate Easter Sunday. And boy, I tell you, I love Easter Sunday. I love remembering the resurrection. I, remember, I love remembering what Christ did for me. But this morning I want to remind you that Easter means nothing to you if you've not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm going to ask each of you to stand to your feet. There we are. And my question is, will you accept the Savior? Will you accept what Christ has done for you? Will you find that peace in your heart that only God 